Welcome to another episode of Research to Practice What Do. I'm Emily. And I'm Andrew. We're your hosts guiding you on your journey in bridging the gap between research and practice. We are here to help all this make sense by sharing ours and others' perspectives on the current research and the intricacies of clinical practice. So, for our guest today on the Research to Practice podcast, we have someone who's been special and pivotal to Emily and myself's journey into the land of exercise physiology and pain science. His name is Daniel Abella, and he's been an EP for nine years. He is also a clinical coach and mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. Dan specializes in MSK injuries and pain, and he helps both guide clients to better manage their own pain as well as helps clinicians develop skills to better handle the uncertainty that comes with clinical practice. So today, Andrew and I will be picking Dan's brain about social media, barriers and facilitators clinicians face in their practice, problems and solutions within the MSK side of healthcare. So Dan has actually told this story on a few podcasts now, some of them which we can call out, so Into the Red Zone, Wild Physio Podcast and Pilates Elephants. But Dan, can you tell us a little bit about your story for us today? I guess for the mostly uh, students and also clinicians, I would start from, I guess, why I got into EP and reflecting back, um, it was mostly from my own like obsession with exercise and I really enjoyed movement and uh, training. Uh, had a few string of injuries myself, but I was like really passionate about soccer. And um, I went into sports science originally in Sydney Uni uh, straight from high school. And it was cool. It was really um, definitely like my kind of go-to area. And I knew I wanted to pursue something within the realm of SNC performance coaching for athletes. And then come I think it was end of third year or uh, beginning of third year at Sydney Uni they offered for the first time a direct transfer into EP and I didn't know what that was at all Um, but the reasoning that they gave was you end up with the same degree plus more so I'm like okay nothing to lose Um, talks of the privilege of hex debt which I still have yet to pay off but uh, the, yeah, so the fourth year got into placements and the first placement that I had was at a senior's gym in uh, Old War Memorial Hospital um, by Uniting Care. So shout out to their team. I know that they're still running and going really well. And the experience that I had there working with elderly populations was by far the most rewarding uh, experience uh, that I've I'd ever had and even looking back it was still like a really um etched into my memory of like the the navigating people with ageist beliefs thinking that they were broken or thinking that they were weak um and being told you know you, you shouldn't be doing this uh, you have to move um you know carefully take it easy and then they're like lifting weights and like lifting pretty significant um weights and enjoying themselves and then seeing the change that that made uh, kept me on the rehab path. Uh, so that's like the entry into EP um, and ooh, went into another degree for a few reasons. One was I wanted to pursue languages and travel. 
And two was I wanted to avoid full-time adult responsibilities. So I, di I didn't feel ready for the workforce. So like, I think it's very impressive to me when people go straight into the workforce from uni. Cause I'm like, wow, you've got like more courage than I had. Um, Cause I had two and a half years. Uh, was it two and a half? Yeah. I think two and a half years of an arts degree. I ended up not finishing it, but I ended up getting uh, a lot of psychology under my belt because that was my passion at the time. I, I got, that was the only subject that I got a HD in back in the EP degree. Um, and I was just super fascinated with why people behave the way they do, uh, what influences people's actions and like thoughts. And um, so got all that I wanted from, from that degree, then went into a few uh, casual jobs. So there wasn't too many, this was 2017. There weren't too many EP positions available in private practice. So you would like search. And I think LinkedIn was just like starting then. I didn't have a LinkedIn. Um, and it was all about like work cover, workers rehab and um, like gym, like a person, basically a personal trainer positions. So I was like, ah, oh, damn. Um, so I found what I could. I found a few mobile roles and a commercial gym um, contractor position and a physio clinic contractor position. So the gym, uh, I felt quite undervalued and insignificant to the like personal trainers that already had like rehab trainer under their belt. So I was like, oh, why am I even here? I didn't really belong to that crew. Um, and then the physio clinic, I felt more like an allied health professional, you know, high mighty on my horse, but, um, still it was, uh, very difficult to, to get referrals. So the, I think there was a combination of the, the physios in my team didn't know what an EP was or like how to differentiate between an EP and physio. Um, and I had to do a lot of the work myself with the marketing. Um, so I was there for about four months in each position and during this time I was, uh, some people call it hustling. Some people call it stalking and just being a social media whore, but like messaging everyone um, that I could. So I went to the ESSA website, emailed all the EPs in the area uh, in um, like around Sydney and met up with a few, met up with Tate Brown, who I hope will be on this podcast soon. Um, met up with uh, everyone I could just to get an insight. I think my line was like, what's it like? being an EP. I'd love to learn from your experience. Um, and I got maybe like 15% uh, response rate. And that was enough to get me into a team in services at a private clinic. So um, talked to an EP at a, a private clinic. She was the sole EP um, and was going to their in services every couple of weeks. And with luck, she was moving on. And I didn't know this at the first time like, that I met her. Um, but I think over the span of the time that I was within the other two jobs, I had uh, basically lined up a full-time position at a private clinic. So I was like, wow, I'm going to take that. Um, had an awesome experience there because um, there was a smooth transition and full autonomy. Um, and then what happened then? There was an existential crisis somewhere there where I was going through previously uh, a lot of my own kind of chronic pain. So I had chronic knee pain in soccer. 
uh, like Osgood Schlatter's patella tendinopathy um, and was told all the usual stuff. Like my outer quad was too big and strong and my VMO was too weak. Uh, glutes were too weak as well. Um, and I was inflexible. Um, so I was like the, the chronic injurer kind of person, like the, the, the one that was always doing the more warmups than the rest of the team um, and staying back to do all the stretches. So this was like my um, entry into the rehab world. So I was like looking for a fix. I was like, okay, what is there within exercise that I can do for myself? Um, and I went through a few mobility uh, corrective exercise rabbit holes. Um, I'm trying to condense this because it's a very long story, but um, going into like a, a lot of modalities and, and then applying them and um, getting results. But then I came across, uh, it was called the biomechanics education. And I took the weekend course <clears throat> with two EPs, random EPs I didn't know much about at all um, from Melbourne at the time. And in that weekend, basically every slide that they presented was like, went against my core beliefs. It went against most of what I was taught about core stability. Cause before then I was doing very typical kind of, um, core stability training protocols and getting people strong. My idea was like, as, as long as I just get people strong, that's all that matters. And, and there was like basically a, an overview in that course of the research base that by that time was actually like seven, eight years old. There was uh, the Lederman paper from 2010 that comes to mind. Um, and I was like, fuck, what do I do? Like, it, it, what's the point of doing exercise rehab if it's like, uh, you know, th there's there's no magic to it. There's no there's no specific benefits of strength. And my my identity was like a strength rehab, corrective exercise, mobility uh, person. And I was helping people. And so I felt like shit. I felt like, oh, my worth, what is my worth? And like got into a bit of like nihilistic kind of um, thought patterns. And um, luckily I was like, fuck it. I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to like, I'm, I'm determined to uh, do what I can and really uh, steal as much information from as many sources as I can. And that kind of was the gateway into from that experience and from their patient demo experience that went like, so was so different in so many ways. I'm trying to remember now it's, it's been a while, but it's like my subjective and objective. I had like a checklist. I had like all the uh, range of motion testing and the strength testing. Um, and my idea was like, you know, there's the first two weeks you would, you know, reduce symptoms. You would go towards, you, you go within their tolerance um, and then you would build up the strength and then you would get them back into like functional activities and, and, and all that. And in that weekend, there was a, a patient that came in with persisting shoulder pain. And the first exercise they did was an overhead press. I was like, what? That, that's, that's like negligent. That's so I think I needed that experience and I needed the, the space of like debating and like questioning and like arguing with at that time it was Brendan and Luke and like arguing back and forth. And um, I was like, Oh, I, I needed to process it in my way, which was just like anger, 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 and like uh, confusion and uh, overwhelm. Uh, 
And through that process, I was very lucky that I was guided to the right sources. And that's when I found Greg Lehman and Adam Meekins. Um, and I, I could actually, I think I came across some of their stuff before, but it wasn't like, I didn't really see it. So it wasn't really as salient to me. I think we'll probably touch on that with social media that it's like, we, we can come across it, but there's a difference between actually observing it and, and knowing how important it is and how relevant it is versus just like seeing it and like, you know, chucking a like and scrolling through, not really taking the time to uh, dive into it, digest it. Um, so post existential crisis and still like reflecting back and, and there's still a lot of things uh, that I'm reflecting back on and learning from and making mistakes and being wrong um, and knowing that that's actually normal. And that's, it's fine. It's not like a reflection of my self-worth if I get things wrong. Um, so in a place now where like uh, going towards psychologically informed practice, which is like ACT stuff, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, communication skills. So it's kind of like a round circle back to my arts degree in a way, just applying it in this setting. Um, and with all the knowledge that I've gained over the years, um, and wanting to share this knowledge in a way that's more compassionate and more kind than I kind of treated myself um, back when I first came across it. So that's like the shortest possible way I can condense like from 2010 to now. It's a lot of years. That was excellent. <laughs> Honestly, I live for the long-winded stories and it's what I want to hear a lot of on this podcast so thank you for actually giving all that detail i've actually known you for a little while dan and i didn't even know half of those things and it's so nice to hear that you struggled as well as somebody that like i began my career and like my my i should say my studies looked up to and uh, all the things you've done on social media like you mentioned like about being a little bit of a social media hoe at one stage or maybe you still consider yourself that and reaching out to a lot of people and getting like 15% response rates and things like that, which me and Emily understand so much with recruitment for studies. Uh, I, I would say Emily's is actually much lower than 15%. It's difficult, right? But it's so great. And I mentioned that you were pivotal to myself and M. Um, and that was because when I found you, it was through social media. I was literally you um, instructing an older bloke to do a deadlift. And I was looking at it going, this is amazing. I love this follow. And then, you know, you DM'd me and we had a coffee and chat and you introduced me to this whole world. And, uh, because you were okay with waiting for that 15%, like that was able to happen, which was really awesome. Yeah. So thank you for all those thoughts. Em, do you have anything to say on that before we jump into anything? No, I think that was, yeah, really awesome to hear. And I always hear new things when you tell your stories. So there's obviously a lot to learn from what you've gone through. Yeah. Awesome. I think we should like jump into our first little topic with that, because considering I found you on social media, right, Dan, with everything that you do, um, you do a lot with social media and there's a lot of challenges involved and things um, that go into it. So if you were to kind of map out to us and let everybody listening know, what are the challenges that you come across when making social media content? The biggest ones now, so 
One is like the context of the algorithm, which changes. So like looking back, uh, a lot of the posts that I used to make would get, I'm thinking now roughly like two to three times more engagement than, uh, than now. I think it's moved into the ad space a lot more now. So what like we talk about in this podcast will be different in two years, in one year, in maybe six months. Um, but I think just the, the challenge is the algorithm and the systems and processes that make posts either more seen or less seen. Uh, and by that, I mean, uh, when we're scrolling through, there's a, a, a like systematic process for the posts that get the mo most likes and comments and shares um, and saves on, say, Instagram will be seen first and foremost. Um, and the ones that are less engaged with or outside of your kind of social media bubble and echo chamber will be seen like last, or you might not even see it. So I've, I've like talked to uh, my friends and EPs Tate and Ellen Masson. Um, and even though I was like actively getting out of my way and liking all their posts, I would still, it would take me like a good five minutes at least of, of just being on social media and scrolling through before I even saw their posts, even though they had made their posts recently. So um, this is, so generally the, the system uh, prioritizes and bumps up the content of people who have like more followers. And that's just the way, the nature of the beast. So talking to people that are just starting out, I think um, having some expectations that it's going to take time and um, you can put in so much effort into having a really well-written caption and a really well-designed um, infographic, for instance, and it won't get seen and people won't read the caption. That's by far the biggest challenge. The amount of effort does not equate to like the, the return that you get or the engagement yeah. that you get. That's such an interesting point. I used to be a very big like Gary V fan and he always used to say, just pump out material. It doesn't matter if it's not always quality, just mm -hmm. pump out multiple things every day. And I think because of the way the algorithm works, there is some truth in that. But then it's also finding that balance of like, yeah, but I got to go and fact check this and make sure this is correct. And at the same time, like do a high volume of it. And that, that's so difficult to find like how you can actually get that done. Yes. It's, yeah. um, it kind of makes you do short form content. So you can only really, uh, put out like maximum of three main points in any like video or infographic or, um, or like even a meme. It's like the, people would look at the first slide or the first uh, image and then that, that's what they take. Um, so I think, I think there's like pros and cons that the, the cons are it's less in depth and nuanced and detailed. The pros are, it makes it quicker. So you can, if you have some ideas that you want to share, just make all of that into one idea and that's your post. So it kind of simplifies the process. Um, yeah, especially, and this is, I'm talking to like content creators, there's other kind of discussions if you're just like uh, observing and, and learning and, and like absorbing the information. Yeah, that's actually a good point. And Emily, please just jump in if you have anything on your mind, cause I don't want to steal this whole potty. Um, 
But yeah, because when you're observing, right, and you mentioned about like actually taking in things as you're scrolling, not just like liking and keep going and liking and keep going and actively, I guess, being mindful with your feed in a way. Is there anything that you would tell people or like spe specifically people that maybe want to even like get into being a content creator um, when it comes to seeing content? Like, what do you think of when you're trying to critically analyze some like claims that might come up? on um social media so for the people who are starting out and thinking about like there's a, there's a process with be, be, before creating content even i had like my own hesitation at the start um because it's quite daunting and there's a lot of good content out there so i think maybe for for people who are like absorbing information following people getting involved and thinking about starting content i think for critical appraisal of the things that you're looking at I think the first step is like finding out what what is the content that you want to look at I think it's it's just the nature of social media because it's so uh, emotively capturing like captive we don't really ask that question so I think just starting with like what do you want your social media feed to be more like and so I'm very unique and different and like obsessive and weird where it's like I curate my feed according to like very highly specific tailored uh, and filtered content according to like my own preferences and where I'm at and like what I'm at now is different to where I was like in 2017 and it's so different to even colleagues who are also nine ten plus years out so if you want to use social media for entertainment, that's fine. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think just at, like being intentional and aware of the, the, the what you're using it for and, and why would probably be the first step. Um, Cause there's nothing wrong with like watching cat videos and like, you know, whatever you want. Do I, can I like throw it to M? Yeah. I'm opening the floor for her. I'm waiting for her to say something here. <laughs> I just feel personally attacked with the cat videos, but anyway, just trying to process that. Um, no, I'm I'm really enjoying this chat. There's nothing I feel like I need to add. I think, well, one thing that Andrew was saying was for people who are content creators um, and how they should filter it. Um, I was thinking maybe we could also ask for some tips for people who are like students or even like lay people. Um, who are struggling with the massive amount of content out there and struggling to know what's misinformation or what's a trusted source? Yeah, good question. So I think that this is stolen from basically a Google search of critical thinking. And I think that's like often undervalued, the power of just like knowing what to search. Um, so this isn't like, I didn't make this up. Uh, and I just used, uh, I think it was the University of Wollongong. I'd have to look up the source, but that, and then I based it off that. Um, just a series of questions that I find helpful to um, analyze and uh, reflect on content. I think this first one is like, what is the claim or what is the statement within a content? Because we get kind of bombarded with very humorous content or like uh, very visually appealing um, like emotive stories and then it's like wh what is the uh, statement or the maybe the purpose or the message 
that that post is making. Um, and if there is no message, if it's just a really cool or funny meme or video, cool, awesome. If it's, uh, there's a, a few that might have a, like a funny surface level thing, but then there's like in, in other spheres of social media, like a very a political kind of deeper uh, assumptions within it. So it's, it's, I think just what is the claim being made is the first um, question. And this goes for like, if my mom is on social media and she shows something, I'd be like, what, what are they saying? Like, what, what do you take from this? Like, what is it? Is it just like to share? Cause it's something that you want to connect with and you relate to, that's fine. Um, it, is it more like they're sharing a fact? Then it's a different kind of thread and flow chart in my mind of like, okay, what, what would the next question be? Um, so yeah, the first one is like, what's the actual claim being made? What's the message? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I was wondering, and we can do this after you've finished your questions. I was wondering if we could go through an example to kind Ooh. of help cool. really solidify this. Yes. Uh, so I'll go through the list and then we can think of an example and, and like some themes. Um, so the, the second part is what do we know about the topic? So if this is like a nutrition um, fact kind of uh, post, what is it that we know about the claim being made or the, the content? Like, is it say sugar is bad? What do we know? Um, and what sources do we have already about sugar and nutrition and health? So we can draw on, and this is not just like an evidence base, but also like our own priors and our own knowledge. Cause we've, we've got things that we know we've, we've been to, uh, assuming we've all kind of had a basic high levels, uh, you know, high school education plus. So we've got some tertiary education more than likely. So we've got some sources and experiences and knowledge to draw upon. What do we know about it? Um, the third one is what don't we know about it? And this is where like our own humility comes where it's like, um, for instance, I see some uh, posts by SNC coaches. I don't work with high end, high end elite athletes. I know some things about training and about technique and about um, uh, performance, but I don't have the knowledge base that they have in their context. So that's the third one. What don't we know? And what do we need to find out? Um, the fourth one is when might the claim or the content be helpful? Who might it be helpful for? And then on the flip side, when might it be unhelpful and who might it be unhelpful for? So that can tailor, like if someone is following a really popular fitness page and it helps them, motivates them to exercise. And it's like the, the gateway drug into exercise. That's awesome. Even if they have some really iffy um, claims the purpose of that post is still overall, it seems to be working for say uh, the lay person. Um, the, the next one. So after we found out like, what's the actual claim? What do we know? What don't we know? When might it be helpful is what's the reasoning behind it? And, and what, what's the explanation behind it? This is only if we generally know something about it. So if, if I'm looking at like an astrophysics kind of, post claim. I know jack shit about astrophysics. So I don't know if the reasoning is right or wrong or like on the right track. I just like, I'm in that first kind of question, what's the actual content? Um, but if it comes to something and talking to students, 
Um, and clinicians, if they come across like rehab or performance or SNC biomechanics, we can look at the reasoning and like question, like what, what kind of um, process do they have for their explanation? Is it, is it logical? Does it follow like the second question? What do we already know about biomechanics, for instance? Um, and then the last one is the sources. Like how did they come to their claims and their conclusion? And it doesn't mean that every single post has to have a uh, reference, but like at least they're aware of, is this more of an opinion piece based on what they know? That's cool. As long as there's a question of like, what, what evidence do they have to support the, the claims? Um, so there's like six there. It's a longish list. I've lost probably half the audience, but maybe we can go through an example. We're going to write those all down, I think. I can share that as well. Definitely. It's, yeah. So, Em, example-wise, what were you thinking? Um, I think just anything classic, MSK, something that surely most people have come across before, like a claim. Um. The McGill Big Three. McGill Big yeah. Three. So I'm ass assuming here because I haven't come across these uh, posts for like years, but the claim would be, clarify for me, the claim would be the Big Three is needed for back pain. Yeah. Pretty much. These the specific best. exercises are going to be helpful for your back pain. So then already we've got a system to kind of make the process very efficient where it's like, what do we already know about back pain? And that already like cancels out the other need, the need for the other questions. Um, but let's say for, for argument's sake that um, we've been taught at university that core stability is important because this is what I was taught. So, um, and I think it's still being taught. So there's going to be people that, um, that have been taught like this is, legit and this is reliable and this is evidence-based um, so then the next question will be like what don't we know and being humble about what maybe we would need to find out so looking at it from a, a research-based context we don't know what the research is so that at least leaves space for change whereas if we don't have that question it's like okay this is great good Yep, makes sense. Um, so acknowledging what you don't know about the big three or about core stability or about back pain or about exercise and its specific effects, that's okay. That's at least acknowledged and there's no shame in that. Um, when might the big three be helpful? I can see for some people it'd be useful as a starting point for loading. And for other people, it might be unhelpful in that they think they need to do it every single time. So there's a dependence model um, and hopefully some people the listeners can relate to um, people having like their own set routine of like 30 minutes of a warm-up routine versus maybe five minutes of a warm-up routine so we have like a scale of how useful how helpful this can be depending on the person and the the reasoning let's say the the reasoning is very much about core stability and core strength and it's needed for prevention of back pain. So then we can go back on our flow chart of like, what do we know about those things and injuries? And based on what we know, it's probably not based on 
consensus. It's not based on research. It's not based on evidence. And that's number six, like what's it based off? Um, and so we can then dive into some of the history behind those claims and McGill's research with the, um, the dead pig spines and the multiple kind of uh, like many, many cycles of flexion. Um, and then what can we can extrapolate from that. So it's a, it's a long process. And I think even just like listening to it now, we can appreciate that it takes a long time to debunk claims. It takes a long time to criticize and to uh, offer uh, an alternative as well. And it it's a, like a deep reflective process. So to think that um, people who are using social media just like really quickly and scrolling through will do that is probably a bit too much. Um, those are my thoughts. What are your thoughts? No, I'm just trying to remember, like, I want to quote you there, like takes a long time to debunk claims. And I think it's really important to highlight how much effort it takes to try and be in the sea of misinformation and um, how much effort it takes from all these people who are doing really good content to make that content or to, well, before that, to recognize the bad content and then make good content. Like it's just, yeah, a lot of effort. Um, I guess that kind of segues nicely into like one last thing about social media, which is what do you think about the common theme that people like to follow um, certain pages to challenge their own biases? Yeah, I think that's one way of doing that. I think it's uh, a method to see alternative points of view. So I can see contexts where clinicians are isolated and they don't come across differing points of view um, or they don't have the time, energy, willingness to sift through like jargon of research and then try and like critically appraise it. And they don't have that kind of support system. They don't have maybe other role models or other people doing that work to help filter, to review the research. So I can see it, it's one way of offering different perspectives. And then my curiosity would be how many ways are there to challenge your biases? Um, and for, for me, I've found it's helpful to, for me to challenge my own bias. I can do that anytime. It's the, this, like the questions that we ask can apply to ourselves. So like the, like what's the actual claim that we are making about anything. So say if we're having, um, a patient, a client coming in with back pain, um, what's our clinical reasoning. So say they need, um, to do squats and deadlifts for their back pain. Um, then we can go, well, what do we know about, you know, squats and deadlifts already and, and back pain. And then we can go, what don't we know? And then when might squats and deadlifts be helpful for most people at this time in this context, when might it be unhelpful for people that don't like squats and deadlifts for uh, people that don't have access to a gym or they don't enjoy the exercises. So we can still apply the same framework. It's just the framework. Um, and I, I think like if we're looking at what's the most helpful way to um, reflect and challenge our biases, it can be through us. It can be through um, people who are, I guess, providing information that's already reliable. I think there's an advantage so then I'm creating a dichotomy between like, you can challenge 
your own views by following someone that uh, provides uh, experience-based content. So based on their experiences, or you can have the same challenge with someone that provides content based on what they know from the evidence and their experience. So if you've got those two choices and we don't have you know, 100 hours a day, what, which one would be the most efficient? Who would you want as your mentor or your coach? Would you want someone who provides information that's based on solely their experience and they haven't looked at research or they haven't challenged themselves? Or would you rather challenge your biases by someone who has tested their beliefs and has already a process and a filter for them? I love that. Honestly, in that you've, in a way, you've just described the evidence-based practice funnel, but for like evidence-based reflection, honestly, that was really good. Um, I didn't even know where I was going with that. I just wanted to say that little anecdote yeah. there. That was amazing. <laughs> That's right. Cause it, it, and we can touch on the funnel. It's like based on our consensus, based on our knowledge and the landscape of evidence and research. And then it's filtered through our experiences and then it's filtered to the client, the patient, the preferences. Um, so I think people maybe in that example would say like one is experience and one is evidence, like one is experience only and the other one is evidence only. And that's false. That's a, a common misconception um, about it. So yeah, so to answer your, your question, it's one way of doing it, like to follow people that you disagree with. It's, and, and you can do that by following people like Greg Lehman comes to mind where he criticizes his own uh, beliefs. He's made a few posts recently, like unpacking what he used to say. So I think you can follow Greg for like an all-in-one as an example. And a lot of science-based communicators do that. That's, it, I'd be very worried if they weren't challenging their own beliefs. Yeah. Um, and I also think that how you get yourself and other people to challenge their beliefs is like really important. So let's say you're updating your narratives. That sucks. It really sucks to have to update your narrative and be like, shit, I was wrong. And then be almost publicly shamed for it sometimes to say I was wrong. It's like, oh, you know, see, this person was wrong and this person was right. And if we actually take into consideration the like good evidence, I should say, like quality, valid evidence, it shouldn't be a bad thing to just update it, right? That's what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to be less wrong than before. We're not supposed to be right, but it makes it hard when you have people calling you out or, or you can make it hard for other people when you call people out and be like, see, you were wrong. It's like, no, how about, Hey, this is new information now. What do you think of this? Yeah. And that's normal and expected. I mean, how did we all first learn how to ride a bike? We fall over the first few times and then what happened? So it's a process. It's, it's like those mistakes, <clears throat> falling over um <clears throat> excuse me like falling over is normal it's it should be normalized so that's a different kind of work, like topic where it's like how are mistakes and how is being wrong uh responded to how do we respond when our colleague is wrong and i think in the medical community it's very much like oh shit you could have caused harm you could have fucked them up it's all your fault so there's like that individual kind of blame which doesn't help for learning so i think the culture of uh generally medicine doesn't really uh provide that safety for people to say i was wrong because like if you go to your doctor and they'll and you go you have one appointment they prescribe you a medication 
and you have that medication, you come back in two weeks and they're like, oh, sorry, I was wrong. You're like, what? I just took this medication. This is my health, right? So uh, I think uh, normalizing the emotions behind being wrong, like it, it's okay to feel bad and feel like shit and feel like uh, regret for being wrong because we were, that's, that's the nature of healthcare. Awesome. Well, let's move on because I'm looking at the time and I'd absolutely love to touch on the other two topics. Um, so you're also a mentor with the Knowledge Exchange, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we're curious in knowing kind of what's your experience being a mentor with um, mm, rephrase. rephrase as a mentor what barriers and enablers or barriers and facilitators do you see clinicians face in clinical practice lots and there's lots of research already on this so i would highly recommend um, if listeners aren't already on the knowledge exchange discussion group head on and search barriers because this is where i've got my information from i don't remember like the majority of things i think because i'm getting old and it's my memory number one and number two because there's so much to remember so um going off like the main barriers that i see with private practice would the first one would be lack of autonomy so what i mean is we uh especially as new grads we get um we, we practice within the system that our workplace uh, has. So I think it's, we need that guidance at the start. There's like a kind of uh, pros and cons of the lack of autonomy. We, we have a, a structure that provides some clarity and we need that. And we need like some ideas of what to do, of how to prescribe, of the process with like clients and the business side of private practice. Um, so we're not just thrown in the deep end with like nothing, literally nothing. Um, at the same time, one of the barriers is once clinicians upskill and they start coming across uh, updated um, narratives of exercise and updated ideas of what exercise can do for injuries, for musculoskeletal conditions, it's hard to then go back into their workplace and apply it. So I think that's, the biggest like theme, common theme that I, I come across from mentoring, and this is physios as well. I would, I would argue physios have it harder because of the systems that they have are more set in place historically, whereas EPs were generally newer to the scene. So for instance, in my workplace, I was the only EP. So the cons were I was alone and I didn't have someone to bounce ideas off but the pros were I had full autonomy physios are generally a part of a team of how many at least two three four sometimes much more in a sometimes often now in a franchise with the way that clinic models and um, I guess the private practice uh, world has evolved too with the franchise model so there's already frameworks in place and the barrier that a lot of us have is being unable to practice it, being able to make mistakes. And that leads on to the second one, which is how our colleagues respond. So I would have mentoring sessions um, 
with with EPs, with physios, uh, with a couple of osteos I've had. And the common theme that I see is this is great, but my colleagues don't do this. Or this is amazing, but like, I don't think my boss will let me. I'm like, oh, damn. So it's kind of, they're all overlapping kind of barriers. And I say the third one is the more of a emotional labor load point of view. What I mean is when we are actually listening to people that takes energy, that takes effort, that takes like frameworks and skill sets that we're not taught. Generally with university, we're taught in a very quick systemized way. They're just looking for particular marking criteria. They're not looking for active listening, reflecting, and they don't have the time or resources or funding to, for instance, uh, assess someone on an initial consult of 60 minutes. It's an initial consult of 15 minutes max, maybe even less. So when going into private practice, we have to listen and we have to like be really on all the time. And we haven't been prepared for being really attentive and actually hearing and being with people in their struggles with pain. So not only is it, we haven't got like just basic listening practice and how to uh, actively listen and reflect back what you're hearing and like the simple and deep reflections. So not only don't we have, we don't have those skill sets, but we also don't have the emotional skill sets of someone's literally suffering. Someone's literally pain impacts their life. Like there's nothing that pain doesn't impact. So we have to hold that emotional load in space. So that's probably the, like underneath I've given three barriers, but that's probably the, the heaviest barrier for most clinicians when trying to apply like a person-centered approach. It's heavy, hard. I actually want to jump in on that one heavy, hard bit. I think the most freeing advice that I was ever given to, um, for my own practice was by my sister because she's a psychologist and sometimes I talk to her about certain things that come up when I'm with people and whatever. And one of the best things that I ever did was actually stepping back from people's issues um, and not having to take them on and understanding where I stood in their healthcare role and knowing that I didn't need to jump into everybody's nitty gritty problems of everything. And I've got a certain thing to do with them and I'll listen to them and um, converse with them. But if they need a different type of help, I need to understand that, and that I can't give that to them um, because it's heavy. And it's, yeah, I've, I've felt that barrier 100%. Yeah, and that's a great skill. And you've got access to a bit of a free coach mentor. Don't say I, don't tell her I said that. But like that, that skill is not taught. Like where is that skill taught in EP, physio, chiro, osteo land? Like nowhere is, is it explicitly like uh this is yourself and this is what's happening to you and this is what emotions you have so naming your emotions is important and then acknowledging that they're having their own emotions and that into like intersubjective space the therapeutic space in between is where the work is done sometimes people talk just to be heard as well so we don't know like when is someone just talking just to express themselves because we're rushing to a solution so I think there's so many skill sets that uh, people don't have. And also the, 
the time it takes to develop not only the skill sets, but also the reflection needed to hold our own emotional baggage and our own emotional load um, is also a factor. Awesome. So you've got those three big barriers that you've mentioned. What would you say three big enablers are then? I'm going to cheat and go to the opposite. So we'll start with the first one where if someone has autonomy, that's by far the biggest enabler. I know I'm being lazy. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's like an enabler, possibly a, a, like luck privilege to be in a workspace that allows you to make mistakes and allows you to like suggest things and you have a boss, an employer who listens to you and who like you can offer some suggestions and you can have some constructive, like helpful dialogue with them. And it's not just, you know, you're being micromanaged and told exactly what you should or shouldn't do. Um, and then the, the second one is like colleagues who are on the same boat, who maybe listen to podcasts like these, maybe uh, shoot the shit, you know, talk, talk shop about, what they've come across on, um, you know, on social media and, and go to courses together. I think that's like a huge enabler where if you have a community around you of curious clinicians who are keen and to, to learn, to grow, who are humble as well, um, who acknowledge what they don't know and you can learn together, you can practice things together. Um, so I think having a community and that social support is so crucial because if we're isolated as a clinician, with no support network, most people can't handle that and you just burn out or you go back into um, biomedical kind of fixer mode, less thinking, less emotional load. Um, and yeah, so the third one is having a space for that. And that, it really depends. It kind of floats in a spectrum of like therapy on one side where we have to acknowledge why we became healthcare professionals and where that came from and the kind of helper nature that we have, where that uh, can be more unhelpful where it's like we're meeting our own needs that we haven't that haven't been met for instance in our past or if we are just um, for instance we got into healthcare for uh, external validation it's like there's all these deeper things in this under the surface of the human that is us and that needs a space um, to to unpack in a very kind compassionate honest way um, and then in the middle, it's like clinical coaching and supervision where Andrew, you can speak, I'm sure about how psychologists get this. It's mandatory. It's part of their training that we have, uh, that space to reflect on cases on what showed up for us, what, what our thoughts were, what our feelings were, um, what our urges were, what our concerns and struggles were. So that having that space for that more intimate kind of, um, uh, vulnerable conversation, and then there's the more the coaching side of things where it's more the skill sets um, needed. So I think like the, the enablers on that third one can range between like uh, clinical coaching and skill sets. Uh, so that can come under like courses and examples and like practical application. Then there's the supervision, clinical supervision. And then there's the, the therapy that might also be needed to help support all of this. So my, I'm also talking like my bias is most people should have uh, have the inner work and and deserve 
therapy that's high value and high quality. Um, but yeah, so I kind of went the opposite of the barriers. Yeah, that's okay. We forgive you. <laughs> Speaking on Andrew's behalf. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, Emily, because yeah, there's this um, chick that I've heard of doing her honors that's actually kind of looking into something similar. Like, mm, have you heard of yeah. other facilitators and stuff? Mm. I don't know if that chick can comment on it at the moment. Okay. Um, but Early she days. she is telling me that what Daniel is talking about is along the lines of what she's saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he must be kind of correct. <laughs> See? <laughs> um, so last topic, problems and solutions in MSK healthcare. I'm going to give you a bit of a constraint here, Daniel, and ask you to give one problem and one solution. So you can do the solution to the one problem, Ben. <laughs> the paternal biomedical fixer is the kind of all-in-one problem that I would say is uh, the, the easiest one, like the lowest hanging fruit. Because otherwise the rest get like system wide and it's fucking deep. So, and it's, this is for clinicians generally as the audience. So I'd say the, the biomedical assumptions, we find something that's wrong. That's the cause of the problem. We get to the cause of the problem and then bang solution. So it's very like linear cause and effect. Um, it's a reductionist model. Um, and there's an assumption that we have the answer. So we're the fixer um, and we generally apply the fix in paternalistic ways. So like the, the term kind of irks me a little bit like prescription, like we prescribe exercise to someone as though we are a medical authority and there's pros and cons to that, I think, but that's a different conversation. The point is we're kind of passively telling someone what to do. I think that's probably the biggest problem that I see in MSK. Um, and then the solution for that is like, maybe the enablers that I just mentioned before to having that space to like reflect on it. And even the critical thinking that you asked me at the start, um, critical thinking and reflection, reflective thinking um, would be a solution, especially something that's like within the control of clinicians. Cause there's a lot with that's outside of our control when it comes to like patients and when it comes to systems and policies and, and systemic barriers. Awesome. Well, I was thinking of doing a classic Daniel thing and asking Andrew what his takeaways are from what Daniel has said. Okay. There's, we've covered, we're talking about the whole episode here, right? Yep. We've covered <laughs> a lot. And actually I was thinking to myself that I'd love to have Dan back on to go into a bit of metaphysics because I feel like we could go through logic and this is my qualitative brain coming, coming out here. We could talk about ontology of what it even means to believe something and what a belief even is and like epistemology of how we, we came to conclude certain things and stuff like that, like evidence wise. Cause like I mentioned before about validity of evidence and things like that and dan you said like how like what we know and what we don't know about something when we're asking ourselves those questions um so i'd love to have you back on to go through all of those but ultimately and this is obviously my takeaways here when it comes to social media i think we need more people on social media to just pump out some good quality things 
more often and not be so scared of being wrong while they're doing it. One of my pinned videos on my Instagram is literally like titled like be fallible or something like that. I can't even remember. And we should be able to have that environment to be fallible and we need more people to be okay with doing that. So that's like one takeaway. Um, that's for the social media stuff. And then for the barriers, it really like barriers and enabler stuff when it comes to MSK, it really sounds like, like autonomy time and like bosses and things are a real issue that you've seen Dan. And it sounds like we, I don't even know how to even put this into words actually, but we, we need to get better at communication overall to help um, get our points across nicely to our team, to our bosses, to our clients. Um, and I feel like slowly we could get there. Like I'm always working on my communication skills all the time. Um, but yeah, my takeaway is communicate, communicate, communicate and get better at those skills really. Yeah. And uh, to clarify as well, because I sometimes just reduce bosses into my own straw man. So I think there's that communication is yes, definitely both ways. And there's some really hardworking ethical bosses out there. So I think uh, that, that point, and that's again, within our control, the communication. And then it's like, how, how much was communication valued in our university training? And for me personally, it was not valued at all um so yeah this is a potential and a starting point hopefully for for the listeners and I'm more than happy to have a part two yeah i would absolutely love that and it's interesting the contrast between you getting no communication and me and m seeing communication being slowly introduced for us because we only graduated last year we did like a whole course where we literally went through motivational interviewing which was great which helped us um, but there's still a lot of other stuff outside of that that people can learn after the fact, definitely. M. Awesome. So, Dan, where can people find you? Hang on. What's your takeaway? Oh, damn it. <laughs> just trying to segue out of that. Uh, my one takeaway, just joking. Um, social media takeaway would be that there's a lot of people trying to do some really good things out there and they're fighting a really hard battle. Um, it takes a lot of effort. And then on the other side of it, there are a lot of people um, that need more skills to critically analyze these posts. And um, it's sad to think that we can't just make all information great. Like we have to teach people those skills. Um, but, you know, that can then go into other parts of life as well. Then my barriers enabler takeaway. Um, yeah, I think there's very there's many multi levels of this, and it's really interesting how um, when I mean multi level, I mean like practitioner, client level, and then workplace level, and then policy, healthcare systems level, and it's really interesting how um, they all kind of impact each other. And so, yes, the clinician can take responsibility, improve their communication, uh, but they're still working within a healthcare system that only gives them five Medicare appointments with a complex client. So there's a lot of skills that we need to learn and also just like be aware of, as you said. And I think getting as much help as you can uh, with supervision and mentoring and 
just know at the end of the day that if you're doing the best you can and things don't go to plan, there are so many other factors out there. Um, and then my last takeaway with the problems and solutions, what was the problem again? The biomedical. Uh, kind of... Yeah. And what was the solution? Oh, I was going to say just the opposite. Like <laughs> that's what I thought. It was whatever the facilitators were <laughs> that we went <laughs> over. That's the cheat sheet. That's why you have a framework. You just keep yeah. going off the cheat sheet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my third takeaway is that we need a framework. And to at least as classic Tate Brown would say, um, we first need to know what the rules are to then break the rules. And frameworks really help us kind of um, see what's out there and what we could do better. And then the more that we know and the more that we understand, we can start breaking those rules. I hope yeah, that was relevant. I thought you were going to share a more expletive quote knowing Tate we'll <laughs> save that for part two maybe what does he say <laughs> something about bits and pieces of your rules you can let go of bits and pieces of them yeah do you want to share a Tate quote Andrew if it comes to mind oh one of my favorite ones is we're just throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks yeah <laughs> classic and then his laugh yeah yeah every Shout time to Tate. We, we love it. we love him so much he's gonna have to come on yeah. now he's yeah yeah this is a call out to him so yeah. um yeah. Uh, and yeah, so to reach me, yes. and I interrupted you. Um, yeah. And first of all, your takeaways, um, I think, yeah, that, that to clarify, I think it kind of segues back. The solution is that critical thinking. And hopefully this is a starting point. I think to think that we can cover all these topics in even an hour's chat is like high expectations. So hopefully this is a starting point for the listeners and the work that you two do will be a continual uh, process and super valuable so yeah commend you both for starting this i've been nudging this for a while and yeah it takes a lot of courage so shout out to both of you for your research as well that i'm very keen to see um so for the listeners who are keen to reach out i think the best place would be instagram that'd be probably the, the one i'm most uh, easily reached on and it's arbilla exercise physiology if you send me a DM and you're keen to find out anything that we've talked about today, like for the resources, just uh, do so. And I can link you to all the the discussion group and the, and the sources that I've used for this chat. But yeah, thank you both for having me. And hopefully it's one of many chats. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and keen for round two. Beautiful. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Research to Practice What Do. You can find all relevant episode information in the caption and find us on Instagram at research the number two practice underscore podcast, as well as on our personal pages at mwalker underscore xviz and at andrewxviz. And with that, we encourage you to remember that research means you don't know, but you're willing to find out.